All right, welcome back. Uh, the next hour <laughs> will be spent on uh, two kinds of issues uh, or topics that generally get far too little attention in 1983 programs, including uh, ours occasionally. And uh, these two topics are damages and procedural uh, defenses. <laughs> and let me say a few things at the outset about uh, compensatory damages. Uh, what I'm going to uh, talk about will apply to compensatory damages liability, whether of individuals or of local governments. And what you need to remember or know at the outset is the emphasis the Supreme Court put in Carey v. Pifus, I've got that in my outline for you, procedural due process case, on the compensation principle. Section 1983, according to the court, compensates for actual damages. If the plaintiff is unable to prove any actual damages, then the plaintiff may get, will get a dollar in nominal damages. No presumed damages under Section 1983. No presumed damages under Section 1983. That's also a principle or rule uh, set out in Carey v. Pifus. Now, when we talk about compensatory damages generally, let me use some of the terminology that personal injury lawyers use. We've got two kinds, and I'm sure I will be corrected if I'm misstating this, uh, but there are two kinds of compensatory damages. One kind uh, is what is often called special damages, and special damages consist of uh, out-of-pocket expenses or losses, wages, medicals, and the like. And then there's this category called general damages, consisting of pain, suffering, humiliation, and the like. Both of these are kinds of actual damages. Both of these are kinds of actual damages. Uh, Carey v. Pifus involved a procedural due process claim uh, in which the plaintiff showed that he was deprived of a property interest, his job in violation of procedural due process, but it turns out uh, that he would have been discharged anyway had procedural due process been given him. So he was not able to get any damages for the loss of the job. The question was, could he get damages for the procedural due process violation? After all, he never got a hearing in the first place. And he argued in Kerry that he was entitled to presume damages. That is an instruction to the jury that it would be permitted to presume damages for the violation of the constitutional right itself. And the Supreme Court, as I said, 
ruled no presumed damages the plaintiff can get. He could get a dollar in nominal damages. He could perhaps show some actual damages resulting from the procedural due process violation, the denial of a hearing itself. But as a practical matter, that's not going to be very easy at all because most of the damages, including general damages, pain, suffering, humiliation, and the like, would be attributable to the loss of the job. So you can begin to see how Kerry was a very nice vehicle to set out uh, these rules. Uh, I should also mention that when a plaintiff shows a constitutional violation, as the plaintiff didn't carry, but is only able to get nominal damages, that plaintiff becomes a prevailing plaintiff for purposes of Section 1988 attorney's fees, but plaintiffs don't rejoice just yet because I will simply cite you to a, uh, a case Farrar versus Hobby. Those of you who are new to the area must look at this case, Farrar versus Hobby, F-A-R-R-A-R. -R -R. The site is 506 U.S. 103, 506 U.S. 103. It's a 1992 decision, which Jerry Bernberg actually argued in the United States Supreme Court. It turns out in that kind of a case where the plaintiff receives only nominal damages or uh, trivial damages, but has asked for the moon, such as $10 million, and the, the, the fact that the plaintiff is a prevailing plaintiff has not really vindicated any important constitutional right, has not changed the way the defendant, the defendant local government, did any, will do anything in the future. Guess what the award of damages is in that case? Nothing. You are a prevailing plaintiff and you get nothing. So a word to the wise, even though it's somewhat off script in terms of my speaking about damages, not about attorney's fees, do not ask for the moon when you, if you are a 1983 plaintiff seeking compensatory damages. Do not ask for the moon. Ask for what is realistic because if and when you win, it may come back to haunt you since you didn't get the wind, the, the moon. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, a related case is uh, the Stakura case, which really follows pretty nicely from Kerry v. Pifus to this extent that a jury uh, cannot be instructed, uh, must not be instructed to the effect that it is entitled to award compensatory damages for the intrinsic value or the importance of the constitutional right violated. That is an impermissible instruction. Stakura was a First Amendment case Jury instructed that you can, even without proof of actual damages, uh, award uh, damages for the intrinsic value of freedom of speech. Supreme Court said no. A general point I want to make very clear here, it's probably fairly obvious to you, but I have to say it anyway. Federal compensatory damages rules are not regulated or affected at all by state compensatory damages rules. <laughs> These are questions of federal law only. Uh, so, state damages rules that may provide more than actual damage, damages, state damages rules that may provide for less, those don't count in 1983 cases, and it doesn't matter where the 1983 claim is filed, whether it's federal 
court or state court because under the Supremacy Clause, the federal compensatory damages rules would apply regardless. What happens uh, when an award, a compensatory damages award is made? Uh, how is it reviewed uh, by either the trial court or, uh, you know, post-trial or by an appellate court? The standard is a fairly flexible one, not surprisingly. Was the compensatory damages award, does it shock the conscience? Does it amount to a denial of justice? Well, you can see that it's a fairly deferential standard, but I must point out to you that particularly when it comes to really high general damages awards, awards that a jury makes for uh, pain, suffering, embarrassment, and humiliation, federal courts have a fair amount, a fair degree of skepticism about those. So there, have, there are many cases in which uh, very extensive, very high uh, compensatory damages awards based upon pain, suffering, embarrassment, humiliation, like, have been reduced significantly, if not altogether eliminated, because the only testimony was the plaintiff's own self-serving testimony to the effect, oh my God, I felt so terrible when this happened, and blah, blah, blah. What is a plaintiff's lawyer supposed to do uh, about general damages? Well, in addition to the plaintiff's own testimony, which is, uh, can often be discounted, Plaintiff's lawyer ought to do his or her best to get as much objective, uh, as many objective bases or indicators of general damages as possible. Testimony from family about the effect of the constitutional violation on the plaintiff. Testimony from friends. Testimony from coworkers. And of course, if the plaintiff can get testimony from uh, medical professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, and the like. Uh, indicating what the impact of the constitutional violation was on the plaintiff psychologically, quality of life and the like, that all helps uh, considerably. There is another important point about judicial review of compensatory damages awards that I want to call to your attention, and it is, I think, the prevailing approach in the circuits. It's a comparability approach. Here is what appellate courts uh, and sometimes trial courts will take into account. They will look at the case law in their uh, area, in their circuits, and they will see the kinds of compensatory damages awards that have been upheld in their circuit and ask whether the award here for compensatory damages uh, is comparable. A, obviously, there's a lot of flexibility there, but the courts are clearly looking for some sort of guidance, and that's where they find it, under a comparability approach. Uh, so if you've got, if you're a plaintiff who was fortunate enough to get for your client, the plaintiff's counsel is fortunate enough to get for your client a very hefty compensatory damages award, be sensitive to the need to comply or, with comparability, uh, to make sure that yours is not an outlier compensatory damages uh, award. Now let's move uh, quickly into punitive damages. And here, 
As you've already learned, uh, you already know, I am sure, punitive damages awards are available only against individuals and not against local governments. And there is a little twist to punitive damages awards under Section uh, 1983. You might have thought that whenever a plaintiff proves an equal protection violation, say based on race, or whenever a plaintiff proves that there was an Eighth Amendment violation based on deliberate indifference, you know, subjective criminal recklessness, you would have thought that there is an almost automatic entitlement to a punitive damages instruction. No, there is not in that situation. Uh, the, the seminal punitive damages decision is Smith v. Wade, which sets out the proposition that a plaintiff uh, need not uh, allege and prove malicious intent in order to get a punitive damages instruction. What is required is reckless or callous disregard. But that decision doesn't stand alone. Take a look at the Kolstad uh, decision, which I've cited to you, a 1999, a 1999 decision. <clears throat> there has to be demonstrated some awareness on the part of the defendant that he or she knew the challenge conduct was in violation of federal law. In other words, some knowledge of the law seems to be required of the defendant who was lost on the merits in order for the plaintiff to have an entitlement to a punitive uh, damages instruction. Now, it doesn't mean that the defendant needs to be a lawyer particularly. You look at the job responsibilities and the like, and you, know, you infer what the defendant actually knew. So that, for example, in my hypothetical involving purposeful uh, racial discrimination, well, that's been around with us as a violation of equal protection since Brown against Board of Education. So now there would probably be a punitive damages instruction available to a plaintiff who can show purposeful, invidious racial discrimination, only because of the actual knowledge of the law, which can be inferred from everything that's gone on in the last uh, half, uh, half century. As with compensatory damages awards, punitive damages awards are governed by federal law. Whatever state law says about punitive damages awards has no real relevance uh, for 1983 punitive damages awards, whether in federal court, or as I said earlier, by virtue of the supremacy clause in state, uh, in state court. <laughs> when it comes to review for excessiveness, here is where things get interesting <laughs> with uh, punitive damages. Previously, the standard for punitive damages uh, uh, awards, that is review standard, uh, uh, included uh, shocks the conscience, I've given this to be so excessive as to indicate inherent passion and prejudice of the jury. Well, I think everybody here knows that the Supreme Court in the last 10 or 15 years has become very interested in punitive damages awards awarded under state law in state court and has increasingly intervened under substantive due process 
to knock out some of those punitive damages awards, again, in state court under state law, but since these are substantive due process issues that are being raised in connection with excessiveness, these cases, such as BMW versus Gore and the like, they all apply as a matter of principle to 1983 punitive damages awards as well. And I've given you a Second Circuit case that indicates uh, that precise point. And the three Gore guideposts I've set out for you here, uh, they are worth uh, memorizing uh, for punitive damages award purposes. The degree of reprehensibility of the defendant's conduct, which is, according to the court, the most important factor. The ratio of punitive damages to compensatory damages. Uh, there have been some Supreme Court decisions which have hinted that 9 to 1 or 10 to 1 might be the constitutional max but no explicit holding to that effect. And then there was a maritime, uh, an admiralty case of a couple of years ago, which was one-to-one, -one, although it wasn't uh, a, a typical punitive damages case. That one involved the, the ExxonMobil uh, spillage. But keep in mind that remedy or that uh, the ratio between punitives and compensatories. And then finally, the difference between the punitive damages award uh, in the case before you and the civil penalties authorized or imposed in comparable cases. That's the comparability approach there. So all three factors are relevant whenever any court is reviewing a punitive damages award under Section 1983. It's literally part of the punitive damages law uh, in general. So uh, that's pretty much what I want to say about compensatory and punitive damages, just to introduce you, however briefly, to those subjects as we move into uh, what I call procedural issues that don't go to the merits. And here uh, I'm going to repeat what all of our civil procedure teachers taught us ages ago. We didn't believe them then, we believe them now. S procedure is at least as important as substance. <laughs> and so many cases are won and lost on the basis of procedure, uh, apart from the merits. So here is what we are uh, going to cover uh, by way of procedural defenses. We are going to talk about statutes of limitation. We are going to talk about preclusion issues. We're going to talk about release dismissal uh, agreements. And then I will say a few things as I conclude about survival and wrongful death. Again, some of these are rather arcane topics, but they are very important nevertheless. And here you're going to learn about another federal statute besides 1983. You're going, to look, uh, you're going to learn about Section 1988. Uh, no, not that part dealing with attorney's fees, but that part dealing with the relevance of state law uh, in federal court because limitations and preclusion are a strange amalgam of state and federal law. So here is what 
Uh, section 1988 uh, says, in civil rights cases, district courts, not surprisingly, are to apply federal substantive law. <laughs> That's the first inquiry. Okay? Federal substantive law unless part two, the federal substantive law is deficient or otherwise unsuitable, in which case you apply the applicable state statutory or common law, part two, unless, part three, unless that state statutory law or common law is inconsistent with federal constitutional law or federal policy. Now, that all sounds rather vague. Let's make it concrete. Section 1983 does not have a statute of limitations. And therefore, federal law is deficient. You're kicked into part two, which is applicable state law. And then, under applicable state law, the rule is, it wasn't this way before Wilson versus Garcia handed down 25 years ago. Uh, seems just like yesterday. <laughs> but what you do is apply the personal injury statute of limitations in your forum state to the Section 1983 claim. So that, for example, in Illinois, there is a two-year personal injury statute of limitations, so it follows that every 1983 claim here, filed in Illinois, uh, must satisfy the two-year statute of limitations period or requirement. Notice that means there is no national uniformity. Those of you in different states may have a three-year statute of limitations for personal injuries, the personal injury claims. Uh, some of you have four. Some of you may have one, although that's very rare indeed. Some of you may have more than four years. That's what you do. That's what Wilson versus Garcia said. And notice, this is important, it's a question of federal law. What do I mean? Suppose the state, a state enacts a, uh, which ordinarily has a four-year statute of limitations for personal injury claims. It enacts a special statute of limitations for 1983 claims. Two years. That falls under the Supremacy Clause because Wilson versus Garcia says that it's a matter of federal law that you would choose the analogous personal injury statute of limitations. Now, it goes the other way, too. Let's flip it. Uh, a state has a two-year statute of limitations for personal injury claims. The state enacts a four-year statute of limitations for 1983 claims. 
Doesn't matter. That may be more favorable, but it's a matter of federal law that you apply the two-year statute of limitations. So I have to emphasize this is a question of federal law. Now, even though there is no national uniformity, trust me on this, before Wilson versus Garcia, it was a real mess out there because you know what federal courts had to do? They looked at the specific cause of action under 1983 and analogized it to different intentional torts, to breaches of contract actions, all kinds of things, so that you never knew what the statute of limitations was unless you went to court and you played, the, played it all out. Uh, it's what I call the Section 1983 uh, guessing game. You didn't know a statute of limitations was to be applied, but now we know. Now, what happens if there is no uh, one analogous personal injury the statute of limitations. Suppose you have more than one limitations period, for example, for intentional torts uh, and the like. The short answer is in Owens versus Ocure, uh, which I've given you here, you use the residual or general limitations period. <laughs> you use the general or residual limitations period. You know the kind of statute that says if your cause of action is not covered here uh, for this, that, or the other, then statute of limitations is four years for everything else, or five years, or six years. <laughs> Let me make clear that we are talking about statutes of limitation and not notice of claim statutes. I'll give you another case and a uh, quick cite. The case is called Felder versus Casey. Felder, F-E-L-D-E-R. 487 U.S. 131, 487 U.S. 131. It's a 1988 decision, and it said very simply that notice of claim statutes, which typically require notice to a local government, say six months, uh, within six months of uh, the claim uh, accruing, uh, to the government uh, of the possibility of the claim. Okay. Supreme Court said, Notice of claim statutes don't apply to Section 1983 actions against local governments. Karen may have mentioned that earlier, but if not, you know it here. Okay? Notice of claim statutes are irrelevant. And you can begin to see the Supremacy Clause analysis there, uh, which would uh, preclude or prevent notice of claim statutes from um, being applicable to 1983 claims. Again, whether in federal court or in state court, the rule, the approach is... Uh, the same. Things become very interesting now because we borrow the analogous state statute of limitations, don't we? The personal injury state statute of limitations. What about the question of when the cause of action accrues? Well, if you think about it, since we're talking about a federal cause of action, it should be, uh, should be a federal accrual rule. When are all the elements of the cause of action present? And it turns out that, indeed, the federal accrual rule uh, is a kind of discovery accrual rule. You remember from torts, those old cases when we were first in law school, where a sponge was left by the doctor uh, after surgery in the plaintiff's stomach. Well, 
When does the cause of action accrue? When the plaintiff knows or has reason to know that there was an injury caused and some knowledge of its likely source. That is the federal discovery accrual rule that is applicable in section 1983 cases as well. Let me uh, illustrate that in a, in a way uh, with the Delaware State College versus Ricks case, which was handed down, gee, 30 years ago now. Suppose there is a, uh, an employee at a public university who is told in the middle of his or her uh, last year of a contract that he or she will not be renewed when the contract expires six months from now or a year from now. And that employee suspects uh, racial discrimination, sex discrimination, it doesn't matter for present purposes what it is. When does that cause of action accrue? One might think it accrues when the contract is up. Nope, it accrues at the time the employee is notified of the decision, even though the decision is not effective. And that's the Ricks case, and that's consistent, of course, with the discovery accrual rule. You know about the harm, uh, uh, and you know its likely cause. <laughs> there is, and we only have a moment or two to get into this, uh, there is a doctrine uh, called the continuing violation Doctrine. If you're looking for one of the sources of that, I'll give you the case and only say a few things about it. The case is United Airlines versus Evans. It's not a 1983 case, but the continuing violation uh, doctrine is set out there. 431 U.S. 553. 431 U.S. 553. It's a 1971 uh, decision. Here is the major principle. You don't have a continuing violation which extends the statute of limitations just because you have continuing adverse effects of the original unconstitutional or illegal act. Continuing effects are not enough. And those of you who are familiar with that Ledbetter case of a couple of years ago, which Congress and I think President Obama's first uh, Act, uh, you know, signing act as president, uh, uh, which Congress overruled, that involved an attempt to use a continuing violation argument based upon uh, receiving paychecks every couple of weeks that reflected supposedly the uh, sex discrimination alleged there. Court said, uh-uh, not at all. Uh, the original act was way back when, and you are too late, even though the effect of that alleged sex discrimination uh, continued. So be aware of the continuing violation doctrine and its very severe uh, limits. And some have questioned whether there even is such a thing as a continuing violation uh, doctrine. <laughs> The special accrual rule of Heck v. Humphrey, you remember that from yesterday. Uh, I gave you a murder uh, conviction and the plaintiff uh, who is still in prison, uh, plaintiff sues 
alleging that law enforcement officers manufactured evidence uh, in order to railroad him, brought about his prosecution and conviction. And the Heck v. Humphrey rule uh, is that if that cause of action, if that cause of action is successful uh, and it would undermine, call into question the validity of the underlying conviction, then that cause of action hasn't accrued. So this is a special kind of accrual rule when there is a, an existing criminal conviction. Remember uh, the way around that, uh, I used the 1983 excessive force claim uh, example where that, if successful, would not undermine the validity of the uh, conviction for murder and that cause of action uh, accrues immediately. I want to call your attention to Wallace v. Cato dealing with 1983 false arrest and imprisonment claims. The Supreme Court there uh, uh, declared or ruled, and these are terms of art now, uh, these kinds of claims accrue when legal process is initiated for holding an arrestee. Let me repeat that. These kinds of claims accrue when legal process is initiated for holding an arrestee. Uh, for example, when the arrestee is bound over for trial by an examining magistrate. That's the last point at which the cause of action for false arrest and imprisonment accrues. Now, just when you thought that things couldn't get any more complicated, <laughs> they're about to get more complicated. Here's where we are. We borrow the state statute of limitations for personal injury claims. We then apply federal law to the question of when the 1983 cause of action uh, accrues. What about tolling? In other words, after accrual, there are certain circumstances under different state laws in which the cause of action is tolled. It stops running. I mean, minority is a very good example. Uh, mental disability is another example. And there are a host of other uh, examples that uh, states uh, have provided. Well, that state law applies, that state tolling law applies to 1983 claims as well. Why? Because you have borrowed under Wilson versus Garcia the state statutory limitation scheme, and with it, you have the tolling scheme. So state tolling law uh, applies at least now, remember that language of 1988, at least where it's not inconsistent with federal constitutional law or federal policy. And I don't know of any, I haven't uh, seen I don't recall any cases in which a state tolling principle has been found inconsistent. Uh, and you can see this principle at work uh, in individual 1983 cases and in class uh, actions. Uh, the Chardon uh, case, which involved, I argued in the court, that involved uh, a Puerto Rico tolling law. It's a civil law system like uh, Louisiana's and Puerto Rico tolling law was applied uh, there. While we're getting really technical about this stuff, let me mention saving statutes. Because saving statutes are a, as I mentioned here, a particular kind of tolling statute. When a plaintiff 
files in the wrong venue or where the plaintiff's cause of action is dismissed for want of jurisdiction. In both cases, utterly unrelated to the merits, let us assume, some states provide that during that period when the lawsuit was improper, where the lawsuit was improperly filed, the statute of limitations has stopped running. So you get that extra time back. Does a state have to provide a saving statute? Not at all, but many states do, and that's part of the overall tolling scheme. <clears throat> Let's get into preclusion now. <clears throat> and you will notice <laughs> that when we talked about limitations, we were talking about state law. It is not unfair for lawyers in the forum state to be expected to know <laughs> their limitations law. Similarly, we will see in a moment that under Section 1738, 28 U.S.C. 1738, in 1983 cases, you apply the law, the preclusion law of the forum state as well. Here is the basic scenario. You are currently in federal court with your 1983 claim. Whether on the plaintiff side or the defense side, it doesn't make any difference. But there was a prior state court decision. We'll talk about administrative decisions in a little bit. But there was a prior state court decision. That's the scenario in which Section 1738 applies, and here is what it says. Federal courts are to give the same effect to state court judgments as the states in which the decisions are rendered. So you're using the preclusion law of the forum state. And I say it's another, uh, it's this amalgam or mixture of federal uh, and state law. Now, when I taught, took civil procedure ages ago, I remember getting some exposure to uh, race judicata and collateral estoppel. I don't know what you had in your law school classes. I don't know how much goes on these days anyway, but it's worth pointing out that race judicata uh, involves claim preclusion, where you focus on claims that not only were brought in the prior state court proceedings, but which could have been brought. In contrast, when you talk about collateral estoppel, otherwise, in my view, better known as issue preclusion, you are talking about issues that were actually raised in the prior litigation, actually litigated in the prior litigation, where you have the same parties or privies uh, as you have in the current uh, federal litigation, and where the prior state court proceeding was a fair one. These are some of the conventional requirements for issue preclusion. Now keep in mind that I'm, I'm generalizing here because you have to know the preclusion law of your own state in order to decide what the preclusive effect is 
uh, of a prior state court proceeding on your current uh, federal uh, proceeding. Prior state criminal proceedings uh, are relevant here. Suppose, for example, that in a criminal case, the defendant moves under the Fourth Amendment to suppress, and the trial court rules against the plaintiff, now our 1983 plaintiff, but then the criminal defendant, on the Fourth Amendment merits. Well, at some point uh, later, this 1983 plaintiff uh, alleges that law enforcement officers violated his Fourth Amendment rights with respect to an unlawful search or an unlawful seizure, which was the very issue that was adjudicated in the prior criminal proceeding, state criminal proceeding, against this 1983 uh, plaintiff. Well, do we have issue preclusion in that particular situation? The Supreme Court held in Allen versus McCurry looking at the preclusion law of the forum state there that yes, that issue was raised, that issue was litigated. Uh, you've got the same party here, the plaintiff, uh, who was a criminal defendant then, had more than an adequate opportunity and incentive to litigate all of this, and the proceeding was, was fair. That is, the defendants in this 1983 scenario that I've just given you would be using collateral estoppel, issue preclusion, defensively. Defensively, right? Suppose, in contrast, just to play with this a little bit, suppose the plaintiff... Uh, uh, when he was a criminal defendant, moved to suppress on the same Fourth Amendment basis, and this time he wins. And now he sues law enforcement officers, alleging that they violated his Fourth Amendment rights. Notice what he's trying to do there. He's trying to use issue preclusion offensively. Well, in that case, you still look at the law of your particular jurisdiction, of particular the law of the form state, but uh, in all likelihood, issue preclusion would, pr would not be applicable because the law enforcement officers themselves were not parties in the original criminal case, and the state's attorney or whoever might not have the same incentive to litigate as the law enforcement officers do in the 1983 case. So I'm just suggesting that it's more likely than not, as a matter of the, the forum state's preclusion law, that there would be no preclusion because of lack of privity. You get the uh, idea. Here is an easy scenario now, as we move away from criminal cases into uh, prior state judicial proceedings. Suppose uh, a plaintiff uh, suppose a person, uh, the public employee, is fired and uh, she brings a breach of contract uh, claim against the employer and loses. Not willing to take no for an answer, that plaintiff goes into federal court and brings a sex discrimination claim against the uh, employer. Guess what? under the law of most states because the 1983 claim could have been raised in the prior state breach of contract action 
right? There'd be jurisdiction. We know that there's probably a mandatory jurisdiction in the state courts under the supremacy clause. Under the uh, claim preclusion law of virtually every state, the plaintiff will lose on the 1983 claim. Keep in mind the result would be the same if the plaintiff had won under the breach of, con in the breach of contract uh, action in state court and then wanted to go into federal court thereafter, could have been raised. That's race judicata. That is a claim preclusion. You decide those issues by looking at the law of the forum uh, state. What about prior administrative proceedings that have been judicially reviewed? Well, the Supreme Court has told us that Section 1738 is applicable there, so, and the judicial review component is very important. That's a state, a prior state judicial proceeding, 1738 governs in that situation. What happens uh, more often is that when a plaintiff has lost in state administrative proceedings, the plaintiff will not seek review in the state courts, but instead uh, will go directly into federal court with the 1983 claim. What's the rule there? Do the administrative findings of fact, almost surely questions of law could not bind a federal court, questions of law that have been resolved by an administrative, questions of federal law that have been resolved by an administrative proceeding. Surely those don't bind, but findings of fact, would those be uh, would those uh, be precluded? Would issue preclusion apply with respect to the subsequent 1983 cause of action in federal court? Now, there's a little trick here, but it's easily resolved. The trick is that Section 1738 only involves, applies to judicial proceedings. doesn't apply to administrative proceedings. But the way the court got around it is to say the following. We're going to create a federal law of preclusion such that we're going to give the same preclusive effect to the prior state administrative proceedings as uh, the state would itself. So the federal rule is comparable now to what Section 1738 does. One very important consideration. You can't give issue preclusion effect. Uh, you can't give collateral estoppel effect to an administrative agency's findings of fact unless that administrative agency's procedures are consistent with procedural due process. No surprise there, uh, obviously. And along similar uh, lines, uh, you should know that the Supreme Court has held that uh, findings of fact in arbitration proceedings do not have preclusive effect as a matter of federal law. Arbitration proceedings are not like administrative proceedings, period. They don't have preclusive uh, effect. <laughs> All right. So this is our second uh, category. First one was limitations, and now, uh, just now, preclusion. And we've been talking about this amalgam uh, mixture of uh, federal and state law. You need to know for 1983 purposes, your own state's limitations law and your own state's preclusion law, no big deal. You've got to know that anyway to practice uh, in your state. Let's talk about a couple of other areas 
uh, before we deal with questions at 11.30. I'm just uh, curious. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. I suspect I'll get a fairly large number. Uh, How many of you uh, know what a release-dismissal agreement is? Raise your hands. Uh, Well, fewer than I would have guessed, (laughs) but all the more reason to talk about them. A release-dismissal agreement is an agreement in which a criminal defendant releases his or her right to file a 1983 claim in return for the dismissal by the state of pending criminal charges. Now, just setting up that, just describing that scenario I think demonstrates a potential for real abuse, right? Filing criminal charges against a potential 1983 plaintiff in order to chill that uh, potential plaintiff, uh, adding extra charges to what might otherwise be tenable charges, possibility of abuse. But despite that possibility of abuse, the Supreme Court held in this Town of Newton case uh, 23 years ago that there is no per se rule of invalidity. In other words, as a matter of federal law, release dismissal agreements do not per se violate federal law and federal policy. You have to look at release dismissal agreements and assess their validity on a case-by-case basis. You look first and foremost at whether the release-dismissal agreement was entered into voluntarily. And in that situation, courts really appreciate it if the Ninth, the potential 1983 plaintiff criminal defendant is advised by counsel. <laughs> Entered into uh, through or with reliance on uh, advice of counsel. There's also an inquiry into whether the judge makes an inquiry into whether under the particular circumstances uh, there is a, any abuse any abuse uh, of the criminal process by the prosecutor apart from the voluntariness inquiry. Now, Justice O'Connor, who concurred in that uh, Rummery case, made some important suggestions, which I think are still uh, with us today. They're certainly sensible. They are still uh, viable. She suggests... Uh, that the release-dismissal agreement be entered into under judicial supervision, that the court be present when the parties start talking uh, about this. And she also uh, suggested that the burden of showing the validity of a release-dismissal agreement is on the one who is uh, relying on it. 
and that is typically the government, but you can imagine situations in which the plaintiff might want to stay with the release-dismissal agreement as well. The burden of showing that the release-dismissal agreement was, was voluntary, not an abuse of the criminal process, is on, according to Justice O'Connor, on the person who is relying uh, on it. Now, there's another factor here lurking in the background, and that is... Uh, state ethics rules. <laughs> I suppose, as a matter of state law, nothing would stop a state or local bar from saying, hey, guess what? A release dismissal agreements are per se unethical, and therefore nobody will enter into such agreements. But that is not a matter of federal law. That is a question uh, of state law exclusively. So these govern where they are uh, applicable. And I think there are some jurisdictions where, if you're a member of a particular state bar, that's the uh, rule. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have uh, seven or eight minutes left to get into a couple of other uh, related but fairly technical topics uh, in addition to those we've covered. <laughs> Survival and wrongful Death. Well, survival, of course, describes how you're going to feel at the end of today. You will have survived uh, two days of this intensive program. But more seriously, what are survival actions? At common law, personal injury claims and other actions as well, perhaps, uh, did not survive the death of the plaintiff or the defendant. State survival statutes provide, as the term indicates, for survival, reversing the common law rule, as I mentioned in my, uh, as I mentioned in my uh, outline. Now, <clears throat> notice, if you will, the relationship between this and statutes of limitation, and section 1988. Federal law, the law of 1983, is deficient. It says nothing about survival, and it says nothing about wrongful death, about which more in a few moments. So what do you do? Well, we now know the drill. If federal law is deficient, we look to and borrow the survival law of the forum state unless that survival law is inconsistent with federal, the federal constitution or federal policy. And that's what this Robertson versus Wegman case is all about. What it says is uh, that the mere fact that that particular 1983 plaintiff's cause of action does not survive under state law, it doesn't follow that that state law is inconsistent with federal constitutional law or federal policy. So long as the state survival statute is an even-handed one, doesn't single out federal claims for, uh, in a discriminatory fashion, you win a few under survival and you lose a few under survival. So you need to know the survival law 
of your forum uh, state. <laughs> what are wrongful death actions? And I should point out that in some states you have one, in some states you have the other, in some states you have a combination which can get pretty messy. Survival and wrongful death actions are treated uh, in the same way. But here is what, as a technical matter, a wrongful death uh, action is. It is an action brought by the heirs for the wrongful death against the defendant for the wrongful death of the decedent. For the wrongful death of the decedent and typically the heirs are seeking compensation as heirs now for their pecuniary losses resulting from the plaintiff's death, which, the decedent's death, which, as I mentioned, was caused by the defendant. That's where the wrongful death part of it comes in, you see. It goes beyond survival. The death is caused by uh, the uh, defendant. <laughs> Here is a very interesting question which we have some answers to <laughs> already. Suppose, and of course 1983 doesn't have a wrongful death uh, component, so what a 1983, uh, a, a, a 1983 plaintiff, if you will, borrows the wrongful death law of the forum state so that the heirs basically bring the 1983 wrongful death action. But here is where it gets a little tricky, much more so than for survival. Many states severely limit the compensatory and punitive damages awardable for wrongful death. So here is the question. When you borrow the wrongful death statute so that the 1983 action can be brought by the heirs for wrongful death, do you inevitably borrow all of those restrictions, limitations on the damages recoverable? The Supreme Court has never answered that question. It might have in the Jefferson versus Tarrant case, which was later dismissed. But we have some circuit court opinions. Well, one in particular, Bell versus City of Milwaukee, which is still the law in this regard, that says something very interesting. Sure, you use the wrongful death statute to bring the 1983 claim. But you apply federal damages rules, both for compensatory damages and for punitive damages. That's what Bell versus City of Milwaukee says. Very important. You're borrowing the wrongful debt statute for purposes of filing the lawsuit, but you're not borrowing it for purposes of the limitations of damages, which would be inconsistent, according to the Seventh Circuit, with federal law and federal uh, policy. Now, the last question, the last point, uh, is a flip side of that. What if a state's wrongful death statute provides for enhancement of damages above and beyond what federal law provides? under 1983. Well, if, if I'm making myself clear, if I've made myself clear up to now, you know the answer. The answer is enhancements are not 
applicable in 1983 cases uh, brought under the wrongful death statute because it's a question of federal law. Inconsistency would apply there as well, even though one might have thought, well, you know what, what's wrong with enhancing? That's certainly consistent with federal policy, but uh, that's not what the 11th Circuit said, and here I'll give you the last site, in the Gilmer case about enhancements now, G-I-L-M-E-R-E, -E, 864, Fed 3rd, 734, 864, Fed 3rd, 734, uh, an 11th Circuit, 1989 decision. Again, federal damages rules apply, both for comps and for punitive uh, damages. And here it is, 1130, almost exactly. And I can take questions. I'm hoping you have a few. We've covered a lot of areas, but uh, uh, there are areas that you need to know something about, at least so you can spot the issues when they arise in your cases and know where to go for research. Yes, sir. Yes, one comment here. We were talking about enhancements on wrongful death damages. An area that comes up is the pain and suffering of the deceased, not the, uh, uh, not the survival action of the deceased. And that's a big bone of contention in the Ninth Circuit. It is allowed. It's not considered an enhancement, but that's something that comes up all the time. Can you get pain and suffering from the deceased in those few minutes or seconds before he actually expired? Very hot area. Well, that's interesting. As I understand... Uh, as I recall, the Bell case, the Seventh Circuit indicated that you can as well, and you're saying the Ninth Circuit has said the same thing. Notice what, the, what, what, you're, what you've described. In a very real sense, the 1983 wrongful death claim has been converted into a claim that could have been brought, that would have been brought by the decedent himself or herself had he or she survived. That's precisely the issue. Very good. That's exactly what it is. And you step in, even though he's deceased, if he has survived, he would have got wrong. And the argument is, if the officer had not killed the guy, then they would have been liable for pain and suffering. Right. They kill the guy and they cut it off. So it's an equity thing. Yeah. Good question. Is there anybody up there? You may remember I reminded you earlier that these mics are available for, for you. <laughs> Additional questions? Please. Sir, you said earlier that uh, governmental notice statutes uh, do not notice apply. Notice of claim. Notice of claim statutes don't apply uh, either to 1983 claims brought in federal or state court. In Colorado, however, in our Governmental Immunity Act, we have a statute that says that uh, our Governmental uh, no Immunity Act, including the notice statute, does apply to federal claims brought in state court. Does that save that at all, or is that an invalid statute? I think that's a seriously questionable statute. Look at Felder and, and C. Uh, regardless of whether the state statute, uh, the legislature says that explicitly or not, uh, it seems to me that this is not a question of discrimination because notice of claim statutes don't treat federal claims any differently than they treat state claims, correct? And uh, in Felder, that was the case. And it seems to me that this statute is very seriously questionable. Okay. 
you may all be ready for lunch. That may be. <laughs> Do I hear stomachs growling yet? Go ahead. Yes, I have a question uh, regarding the uh, uh, continuing violation doctrine, mm -hmm. the date of discovery of the injury. Uh, what if you have a situation where, uh, let's say that they're not providing medical care to a uh, pretrial detainee, and so he knows right away when, they're, when the outside doctor says you should be having this operation that he's, he's uh, been injured. But then later on he has, suffers a quite different injury because of that. A different uh, injury? Basically a different injury. In other words, he, uh, uh, this particular case, the guy had a fractured knee and uh, sometime during the, uh, his, his incarceration, about eight, six months to a year afterwards, then the kneecap dies and so they have to do a completely different surgery. They have to actually remove the kneecap then, whereas before it was basically just denying him a, a, a simple operation. So now he's got a completely different injury and I guess the, the question I'm asking, does it matter whether you, the, the injury changes um, as to whether or not uh, you have a continuing violation. Well, uh, from your description, it sounds to me as if the injury hasn't changed so much as the extent of the injury yes. has changed. In other words, the damages now are greater than they might have. And the question, therefore, is leaving aside the Prison Litigation Reform Act and its strictures, uh, when does that cause of action accrue? And if it's in Illinois, uh, then you're talking about a two-year statute of limitations. Uh, isn't that a question that can apply, uh, be asked in a lot of personal injury cases? You're not entirely sure what the damages are going to be in the future, but you still better file within the statute of limitations and make your best estimate of it. So it sounds to me as if the statute of limitations, may, uh, the cause of action may have accrued from the time the defendant uh, knew that he was not receiving adequate medical attention. Okay. I think. Thank you. Could you clarify what you said about the accrual of a claim uh, for uh, discrimination where if you receive notice before your contract is over that the claim accrues then, but you don't presume any damage for a 1983 action, so have you actually incurred an injury at the time that you get the notice, but before you're actually terminated. Well, it seems to me in that situation, you're talking about the Ricks case, in that situation, you have a very good idea, don't you, of what the injury is going to be. And the injury, the damages, are going to include the loss of the job. So I don't see any particular problem with that one, if I understand your question. You've got, uh, from the time you receive the notice, you believe that you are, you're not being renewed because of sex discrimination or racial discrimination, right? And you, you have to file your lawsuit within the statute of limitations. It could be a year, it could be uh, two, but it starts running at that time. Clearly, the damages that you would seek would be damages for uh, the loss of the job as well. I'm not sure whether you're running into a problem in this scenario with presumed uh, damages at all. Uh, in, a, in addition to the loss of the job, the damages for the loss of the job, surely uh, these days we can all appreciate the availability of 
pretty substantial damage, uh, general damages, pain, suffering, humiliation for invidious racial discrimination. So I think there would be general damages there as well as, as, well as specials that could be recovered for the loss of the job. So presumed damages, I think, are not a problem in that particular uh, situation. And I think there wouldn't be any nominal damages that would have to be of concern either. You'd get actual damages. The question is how many or how much. No, take, take the mic. Have you incurred the injury before you're terminated? You have incurred the injury before you're terminated. The question is the scope of the damages that you can recover. And the damages from, uh, remember I was talking yesterday about causation and proximate cause. Surely those damages are caused by the constitutional violation, and they are surely reasonably foreseeable as well. So again, I don't see any particular problem with, uh, with that one. Do I understand your question? Yes. Okay, good. In, I'm sorry. In a release dismissal situation where uh, if it's invalidated, and so the 1983 suit is allowed to proceed, uh, can the uh, state can then recommence the criminal proceeding? I don't know. Uh, I don't have a short answer to that question. Uh, I would have to ask you uh, to flesh out the hypo a bit and tell us why the release dismissal agreement was declared invalid. And that may give me some indication as to whether the criminal proceedings can go forward or not. If it's declared invalid because there was an abuse of the criminal process, it seems to me that would cast a great deal of suspicion on the states going forward with the criminal proceedings. Yeah, I don't have a specific case in mind. I was, I, it was a purely academic question. So you've I guess I've answered it purely yeah. academically, haven't yeah. I? <laughs> One of my professors once told me years ago that one of the beauties of being in a law school classroom is the opportunity to engage in what he called irresponsible analysis. In other words, nothing in the real world, he's overstating this, obviously, you're developing your critical faculties in the law school classroom. He said, nothing in the real world turns on it. So have a go at it, he used to say. <laughs> okay. Do you know if town of uh, Newton versus Rummery only applies in the criminal context, or could it apply to civil proceedings where a person's taken into state custody, like a mental health involuntary treatment proceeding? Uh, that's very interesting. I should think, as a, uh, as a matter uh, reasoning by parity of reasoning, that it might apply there as well. And in that situation, you might, you might have uh, something more, and maybe even in the town of Rummery situation, there's the potential, remember 1983 malicious prosecution uh, action? Uh, if a 1983 plaintiff can show that uh, the law, the criminal proceeding was brought uh, just to punish or harass or the like, and the, if the civil proceeding can be shown to do the same thing, you have a 1983 kind of civil malicious prosecution uh, claim. I think the reasoning would apply the same, the same way. Sure. Go ahead. Let's get the mic down here. Just a caution that in Illinois, I know that there is a professional rule of conduct that prohibits you initiating a civil proceeding to gain advantage in another proceeding. That of is, course. Yeah. I think that might be called abusive process, or does it have a special name here? 
there's a specific rule on point. I don't recall the number, but it's prohibited. And you call it a rule, and it's prohibited for lawyers. Yes, and our rules uh, of professional conduct. To do that. Okay. Anything else? Well, I'm giving you four extra minutes for a more leisurely lunch. Thank you very much. <laughs>